Come in, come in, and welcome to the Cave of the Eco Chamber, a podcast brought to you by the journalists of Ends Report, exploring the most important environmental policies in the UK, with me, your host, James Ajapong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be bringing you an exclusive on waste permit delays forcing some businesses to choose between illegality or going bust. The Office for Environmental Protection's warning that water pollution rules for farmers may be unlawful. And yet another exclusive on Natural England's free fall into oblivion, as insiders warn that most of its missed deadlines on planning applications are due to resourcing problems. For our deep dive, we'll reveal how England is being tapped dry. Where and who are obstructing our water bodies? We'll find out. So let's adventure together in this week's Eco Chamber! To help me on my expedition into the cave of big green news this week, I'm joined by the editor of ENDS Report, Jamie Carpenter, and the manager of ENDS Compliance, Alice Fillon. Jamie, we sometimes hear about waste criminals playing it fast and loose to make a buck outside of the law. But what we don't talk about is waste businesses being forced to choose between going broke or having to operate without a permit. Can you explain to our listeners how this scenario has come about? Yes. So this relates to some pretty significant delays in how long it's taking operators to have their environmental permit applications decided. So um, we, we've heard that some some firms are waiting almost two years in some cases for the environment agency to issue them with a bespoke permit. Um, that that's very much the the more severe end of the spectrum. But um, consultants are telling us that delays are a real problem, and these delays are getting worse. And and the the problem for waste operators specifically seems to be around the delays in the time it gets for them to actually for the permit to reach the permitting officer who will then determine the permit. So the kind of allocation time rather than the actual time it takes to actually decide the decide the thing. Um, and as I said, we, we, we know this because um, waste businesses, consultants have been, been sharing their stories with us and some of them seem like horror stories, really. Before we get into the horror, I'm going to bring in our policy wonk here, Alice. Can you just tell us what a bespoke permit is and then what a standard waste permit is. Right. Uh, it's all in the name. The standard permits um, are permits that you can apply for if your activity fits within a predetermined fixed set of rules for common activities. Um, so typically that's something where the risk is known a little bit better. Um so it sets limits on the activity. So for a waste permit, it will set limits on the types of waste, say that you can treat if you're applying for a permit to um, for a treatment uh, activity. Uh, it will set um, the types of treatment uh, that you can or cannot uh, use to fit within that particular standard rules. And it tends to be typically more low volume and lower risk activities. So if your activity falls outside of that scope, uh, you will likely have to apply for a bespoke permit. So as an example, uh, if you're a waste business and you want to carry out uh, waste transfer and treatment for less than 75,000 tonnes of waste per year, 
and your installation is not near any protected sites, not near any drinking waters, not near any residential areas, for instance, that will usually fall within a specific standard rules and you will be able to apply for a standard permit. If, say, you're the exact same waste business, but you want to ramp up activities, suddenly you want to treat 100,000 tonnes per year, the risk is higher, so that will move you on to a bespoke permit that will have to be decided on a case-by-case basis. And that's where we've sort of come to with this story then. It's those businesses needing those bespoke environmental permits. So is the EA then slipping, Jamie? Um, yeah, well, the, the answer to that is is yes and no, I guess. So if you're looking specifically at bespoke permits, we know that new bespoke permits in 2022 are taking around four and a half months to be allocated. But in an email sent by the Environment Agency and seen by ENDS, the average allocation time has now almost tripled. It is now up to a year. Um, so that's bespoke permits. On, on the standard rules permits that Alice was talking about, um, and that those are the ones, as, as, as we were saying, that they propose less environmental risk. Um, the, the response times on those is actually improving. So um, the, the average allocation time for one of those in 2022 was between five and six months, but now that's down to an average of, of four months. So um, so it does seem like the problem is in a specific area related to these more complicated and high-risk permits that need to be decided uh, on a case-by-case basis. So then what's been the impact on the ground, you know, for those complicated waste sites that need that bespoke environmental permit? Uh, So we've got uh, Alan Potter, who's the director of Beyond Waste Consultancy and who is also an ex-waste regulation officer at the Environment Agency, uh, who's outlined a typical example where an application for bespoke permit was made in April 2022 for one of his clients. And yet a year later it still didn't have a permitting officer allocated to it. Um, So this was a very small business um, specialising in uh, dealing with catalytic converters, so quite niche in a sense. Um, And the agency then agreed in April 2023, still according to Alan Potter, to fast track the application, but it still wasn't allocated for a number of weeks after that. And then the permit was granted at the turn of this year. So almost two years after the submission of the original application. Um, So obviously that's a considerable amount of time. Um, And this client uh, survived, but Alan Potter also told ENDS that he knows firms that are either operating without permits or just have gone under because um, it's not a reasonable timescale. So we like to point the finger, or certainly I do, and I'm pointing it at you, Jamie. Who who's to blame for this? Not me, although you're pointing at me. Um I mean I think I think it is a really it's a really serious issue. And I I, I guess the the we're just talking there about a, a business that survived um could have gone to the wall, but then you've also in this country we've got this really serious problem with with waste crime and, and and one of one of the kind of unintended consequences of, of this or consequences of this is basically that that firms are basically having to choose between possibly going out of business or running a site illegally because they don't have a permit which is not not a great situation to be in um, i mean talking to people about this what one one of the in terms of who's to blame um, people aren't wanting to blame individual environment agency staff they're, they're saying this, this again is is one of the consequences of, of 
the environment agency's resource constraints. Um, so Graham Kennett from from Mavet and Associates is saying that um, it's a case of a poorly resourced organisation buckling under weight of expectations. The environment, EA staff and the sector deserves far better. And he was making a point in, in our coverage that a poorly resourced agency here is resulting in a loss of contracts, potential permit breaches and even job losses. So it's um, it's a really bad situation. But I, th- I think the, the I mean, we, we've been covering permitting for a long time on, on ends and, and the, these delays have always been a problem. It just seems they're particularly acute in this particular area at the moment. Further to their comment that standard rules permitting response times are improving, the EA press office told us that a new team has been formed to deliver standard rules permits, increasing the pace of delivery by over 50% for some application types, and we plan to continue improvements during 2024. Yes, but what about bespoke permits? Anyway, let's move on. And it's the news that the government may have broken the law over river pollution rules for farmers. That's according to the Office for Environmental Protection, the watchdog in charge of holding the government to account over its progress improving the natural environment in both England and Northern Ireland. We're focusing on England this week, and it's the OEP who's called out DEFRA on what they deem to be wrong advice it's issued to farmers. Alice, can you bring us up to speed? Yeah, so uh, the Office for Environmental Protection is specifically targeting DEFRA's statutory guidance on the farming rules for water. So that's the reduction and prevention of agricultural diffuse pollution, England, Regulations 2018. Nice. Um, That's just off the top of your head. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) She knows. Um, I know. Um, So DEFRA uh, issues statutory guidance for specific pieces of regulation and... um, in this case, uh, the OEP thinks that that guidance may be unlawful insofar as it reads as an attempt to create an exemption from or defense to a breach of the requirements of Regulation 4.1 AI, which is not provided for in the Farming Rules for Water and which Parliament has not ratified. So just for a bit of context, that specific uh, regulation is the application of manure fertilizer uh in terms of it must be planned in such a way that it doesn't exceed the needs of the soil and crop on that land. So what they're saying is that in some cases, that guidance may be allowing um, farmers to play a little loose with that specific requirement. Um, And then that guidance is due for review um, by September 2025, uh, but the OEP has still written to DEFRA requesting that the guidance be amended as soon as practicable and also has asked for a timescale for its review of the guidance. Alice sort of alluded to it there, Jamie, but why why is the OEP concerned about what farmers are up to? Um, well, well it, I, I guess it should be because of the the pollution that they that, that farming activities generate. So so there's there's obviously loads of attention at the moment, quite rightly, on on sewage pollution into into our waterways, but but actually agriculture is um, in in is just as serious an issue, and in some places it's probably more of a serious issue than than, than sewage is. Um, so that that's in a nutshell what this is all about, basically. Um, and this this situation has kind of come about because some NGOs, WWF and Client Earth, they they've had concerns about this, and they've 
they submitted freedom information requests, um, which found that between January 2020 and December 21, the EA conducted just over 2,000 inspections of three key agricultural regulations and identified breaches in almost half of farms they inspected. Um, so based on the level of checks they undertook, that's less than 2% of farms per year inspected. And the big concern is that no one really knows what's going on um, on those farms in terms of pollution and indeed how many how many breaches might be happening at any any given time. I mean, that all sounds like good grounds to to sort of push a legal challenge. Is that what the OEP wants to do with DEFRA, Alice? Mm, in short, no, not right now. Uh, it's said that it's reserved the decision about whether to investigate until it's received and analysed the response that it's asked from, from DEFRA um, about updating that particular guidance. What's DEFRA said in response to all this, Jamie? Um, it, well, it's all, all okay, I think, James. <laughs> you're pleased to hear. Classic. So, Everything's one fine day and dandy. We'll, one day we'll get a response, which is like, you know, you're absolutely right in this report. Things yeah. just, they're not peachy. No, we're all just grumbling. <laughs> yeah. So so the, the, the DEFRA spokesperson said, we have set highly ambitious, legally binding targets to reduce water pollution from agriculture. And, last, and just last year, more than 4,000 farm inspections were carried out to ensure farmers comply with legal requirements. Oh, so basically everything's going well in England's green and pleasant land. Yeah, and, and you'll also be relieved to hear that DEFRA is also supporting farmers to improve water quality in a local area through environmental land management schemes. Um, and DEFRA said it continues to work constructively with the OEP and is in close communication about how it can support with their ongoing assessment. On to our final news story this week, and it's another ENDS exclusive that Natural England is missing more than 80% of planning deadline responses because of inadequate resourcing. Furthermore, Natural England insiders have warned us that it is hemorrhaging experienced staff. So we know that resourcing for England's environmental regulators like Natural England and the EA, it's been bad over the past decade. Funding's been cut staff numbers have historically been cut. But we now have some seriously concerning data, don't we, Jamie? Yeah, I mean, this, this data's um, around the... Um, so so Natural England is a, is a body that's um, a statutory consultee on, on planning applications. That, that means that for certain types of, of planning applications, um, bodies like Natural England have to be consulted and it has to it has to respond to those. Um, so um, there's an analysis of, of official data that the, the Union Prospect has done, um, which um, we, we verified and, and um, seen. And this shows that the number of times that Natural England has missed its 21-day statutory deadlines for planning application responses has risen by almost a third in a year. So that's rising from nearly 1,500 in 2021-22 financial year to nearly 2,000 in the last financial year. Um, so that, that that sounds bad, but but should just make the point here that overall most of the deadlines are still being met. Um, so I think I think they're not kind of high high 80%, that kind of figure. Um, so that, that's the kind of picture in terms of how the deadlines are going. And then, then the, the thing that's really interesting here is why those deadlines are being missed. So... Um, so this this analysis says that eighty three percent of the time that these deadlines were being missed was due to agency resourcing problems such as workload issues, 
staff absences and availability of specialist expertise. Um, and, and this all comes at a time when the regulator is responding to more planning applications than ever. Um, and insiders have told us, um, I should say, told, told Tess, who, Tess Colley, who wrote the story, that they're leeching experienced staff, which is hampering its ability to keep up. It's interesting, isn't it, at a time when you've got sort of some big political heavyweights like Michael Gove weighing in and sort of pointing the finger at the watchdogs for holding up housing. Um, you know, this almost shows that it's not of their own making. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was a, that was a point that Michael Gove kind of made a few a few weeks back about. Um, I think Natural England and, and Environment Agency kind of, um, as you say, slowing things down due to not not kind of um, fulfilling their role. Um, well enough on these things, but but it, it's not really, I guess to put it in real, real real sort of basic terms, it's not really their fault if they if they haven't got the uh, resources to um to to respond to them quickly enough. And when we talk about resources, we're not talking about staff numbers at Natural England. Like we're not talking about the head count, are we? Uh, no, we're not. Uh, we're talking about the turnover and the loss of experience, as you mentioned at the top of the story. Um, so it has increased its headcount by about 500 people between 2022 and 2023, but ENS has heard from staff repeatedly that often the only way that they can improve their pay um, is through promotion. And when their pay is among the lowest in the DEFRA group, that's a concern uh, because it means that a lot of staff cannot stay in posts for long. Um, and skills just leave the teams. Um, so one Natural England insider who spoke to ENDS um, anonymously said that some planning teams are almost eroded to oblivion compared to what they were a few years ago, and then added that it's not necessarily lack of staffing, because actually Natural England have invested in that quite a lot. It's the actual loss of experience. Um, so obviously that's going to put, that's going to lengthen the time that that it takes because experience is often a, a shortcut to, you know, if you've done it a lot before, then it goes faster and you can share it with your team. Um, so yeah, from the experience of that um, insider, it was the medium sized planning applications uh, rather than major infrastructure projects like offshore wind farms or nuclear power stations, um, which were feeling the effect of natural England's resourcing strains. Um, so the example they gave was environment agency graduates fresh out of uni having to stand the ground with experienced developers with millions tied up in an application. Um, and obviously you then end up with somebody who potentially feels quite junior having to go toe to toe with people who have years of experience, um, and, you know, a high powered, uh, team of lawyers with them. Uh, and that's quite a daunting prospect for sure it's quite it's quite bad as well i mean if, if you're if you're concerned about um the environment and good environmental outcomes there's a, there's a real imbalance there so if you have a junior member of staff from natural england who's trying to to fight the good fight for the environment and they're, they're facing um big developer with with deep pockets and loads of lawyers then, then you do worry about what might happen or come, might happen because of that yeah, I mean, with experience comes confidence as well. 100%. So you can just bully down conversations or push bulldoze through things. Yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely. Um, there is there is sort of a, 
attention here, I think, for Prospect. You know, they, they, they must want to see houses being built, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a housing crisis, right? Yeah, and there's um, jobs and there's money to be so, made and the economy. Yeah, it's boom. not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not. It, it shouldn't be a uh, an adversarial uh, situation. Good point. Um, but um, so Mike Clancy, who is the general secretary of Prospect, um, t- told ends. We are rightly told that getting Britain building again is critical to growing the economy, but that requires properly funding regulators so that they can meet their obligations. If the government wants to speed up the planning process, as well as protect our biodiversity and natural environment, then fixing the broken pay system at Natural England is critical. Um, So yeah, the solution is uh, clear in that case. and he also rebutted the government's previous claim that Natural England is a block on planning applications because the figures show that it's absolutely clear that these delays are predominantly the result of insufficient staffing, particularly at senior level, and it's rapidly getting worse. He said. Yeah, that's still from Mike Clancy. So what's then been the official response from Natural England? Well, from a different Mike, this time Mike Burke, who's... Um... Program Director for Sustainable Development at Natural England. Um, he kind of gave a fairly no-nonsense response. He said, as a statutory consultee in all developments, we play a vital role in ensuring they are sustainable and rightly contribute to nature's recovery. Um, and and he, he kind of points out about the fact that most of these these um, applications where Natural England is consultee, it, it does that within 21 days. So he says, in 2022-23, we received over 17,000 planning applications with nearly 87% of those receiving our feedback within 21 days or the agreed deadline. Um, he added that we know the volume of planning casework for Natural England has increased, which is why we have streamlined ways of working to allow local authorities to self-serve for simpler cases while ensuring our highly skilled staff members can focus on the cases of highest environmental importance. Time now for our moment of the week where we reflect on something fun, weird, cool, strange, bonkers. Um, Jamie, do you have a moment of the week? I do, yes. I don't know quite which um, of those categories to file this one under. You can add your own. I can add my own. Well, this this is a bit of a different moment of the week as well because it's a moment of the week that has not yet happened. Okay. So, um, a moment to be. A moment to be, which is later today, Wednesday, the deadline for making nominations to this year's power list closes. Excellent. A what power of- list is that? It's the uh, the 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 biggest power list in the environmental sector in the UK. So, um, so we're looking for. There are two types of people we're looking for. We're looking for um, professionals who have done great work in the last two years, who have made positive environmental impact. Um, you can you can see the list of categories on on our website. Um, this year, we're also opening it up to to recognise politicians who have done great stuff um, because we thought because it being a general election year, we're being told that now is a good time to reflect on who have politicians who have, have made really good positive change and that they're not necessarily thinking about MPs, it could be peers, it could be people in local government, um, devolved administrations, um, mayors, even even people working with pa- people who are elected members of parish or town council. So, um, so yeah, we'd, we'd really love to hear your nominations. Um, every year we, we have complaints from people who say so-and-so should have been on the list and 
that tends to be because they haven't been nominated. So if if you if you do have someone in mind, just just fill in the form. It's really quick, and um, we'd love to get as many names to pick from as possible. Fantastic. Nothing wrong with a bit of self promotion. Alice. Have you got a moment of the week? I do. And I have also gone rogue and gone for something that is awaited rather than already happened. Fantastic. So um, it's an example of nature's showmanship. That's what I'm going to say. There's a rare moonflower at Cambridge University Botanic Gardens um, that's set to bloom. And so it's an Amazonian cactus that's quite rare in captivity. And it only blooms once a year. And then the flowers immediately die. Um, And it's set to bloom. Uh, It's on webcam watch. So it's got four buds that are due to open up at some time in the next couple of days, maybe. Yeah, so you can kind of like watch it online. You can uh, stroll on to the Cambridge uh, Gardens. And it's also, apparently, it tends to bloom in the late afternoon or evening. So perfect for insomniacs. (laughs) <laughs> so it sounds a bit like watching um, that thing with, with Liz Truss and the cabbage, doesn't it? It's oh, like watching yeah. the webcam of a cabbage who will last longer, like a like a more like a more wholesome version yeah. of this. Yeah, and it only lasted a day. Uh, I I think I can top both of you with monkeys and hedgerows. Oof, yeah, tall order. Okay. I don't believe it. Okay, so I'm going to start with the hedgerows. So this is really cool. We now know how many miles of hedgerows exist in the field boundaries of England. Do you want to take a guess? How many how many miles of hedgerows? This is where I expose my lack. It's normally of like kind of how many Olympic sized swimming pools or how many times the size of Wales or something, isn't it? Those kind of I mean you um, could do hedgerows in Wales if you if you want. Is it is it longer than the um than if you take your intestines and you lay them out i see it's a good it's a okay i'll go with that not with intestines or so it's it's enough to go around the world almost 10 times oh okay all right yeah so that's almost a quarter of a million miles of hedgerows qualified at a height of one to six meters uh, have been recorded in england uh, which is amazing so this work was done by the center for ecology and hydrology they hope that the data will be used towards the government's environmental improvement plan namely that the government pledged to support farmers to create or restore 30,000 miles of hedgerow a year by 2037 and more thereafter. So that's really cool. We could have a wonderful conversation about the Anglo-Saxons and how they created oh, the field yeah. boundaries yeah, yeah, yeah. of, Presumably of like the, the Old England. In the Old Up England, the, the hedgerows would have gone round England many more times than 10, wouldn't they? Like yes. The, yeah. yeah, we have a lot to thank or blame with the Anglo-Saxons and the current boundaries of hedgerows. Um, it is worth pointing out, though, that during the war, post-war, sorry, 1940s to 1990s, it's estimated that Britain lost about half of its hedgerows due to the intensification of agriculture. So there's a right. bit of a revival now, though, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, we all love a hedgerow. And we all love monkeys. How many monkeys are there in the hedgerows? Oh, wrap your brains around that one, listeners. Tell us. Uh, email us, ecochamber at haymarket.com. But I'm going to talk about one particular monkey, which is a Japanese macaque, which escaped the uh, a zoo in the Kengorms. This is the Highland Wildlife Park. There is still a, a hunt ongoing to find this snow monkey, it's, it's also called, uh, which managed to break out of its enclosure. Um, it's a seven-year-old male, about the size of a medium-sized dog. 
interesting detail here at the BBC's uh, reporting. Um, it's not dangerous, but it's bit well unless unless it feels threatened. Apparently, so that's when things can get nasty. Um, but yeah, it, it's thought that it escaped because of of sort of the hierarchy of the pack. There's a thir- there's thirty seven in the troop, and it's thought that it sort of the hierarchy pushed it out because it was it was it was worried. But anyway. They've got drones out. They're trying to get the monkey to say hello on the a webcam so they can find it and relocate it. But I, from now on, the moment of the week will be this story of the monkey hunt until we find the monkey. Oh, so you're just an Ooh. oppressor. You just want to track the monkey down. No, I just want to find out about the monkey. People want to know. Okay. People yeah, yeah. want to know. It'll be like that wolf that killed yes. Ursula von der Leyen's yes, yes, yes. pony. Mm-hmm. But it's still, it's still at large as well. So yep. we need to do some updates on that. <laughs> I, I've got a, I'm, I'm putting it on the record. I'm, I was on the side of the wolf, and I still am, and I'm on the side of the monkey now. Fantastic. On to our deep dive now, where I'm joined by Enzaport Shosha Adi, who has uncovered the dirt-dry truth about how much water England abstracts every year, and who the biggest thirst guzzlers are. Shosha, can you just give us some of those headline figures that you've uncovered? Of course. So the headline figure, or the biggest one, um, is that 47 trillion litres, or 47 billion kilolitres, if you know we're going to take that number down a little bit, um, of water is being authorised for abstraction per year from the environment in England. Um, and that's from groundwater sources, um, such as underwater stores like aquifers, surface waters, such as lakes, rivers, streams, as well as tidal waters. Um, and that figure sounds... Uh, unimaginably large, but to contextualise it a bit, um, that's equivalent to 18.8 million Olympic swimming pools, or is equivalent in weight to 7.8 billion male African elephants. Wow. So a lot of water. Um, And I think a good way to think about this as well is if we think um, in England, we're using 840 billion litres of water in domestic use every year. And this is 55 times that amount. Okay. So it's a huge figure. I'm trying to imagine that many billion elephants right now. I'm still back there. Um, before we sort of dig into this, can you tell us, you know, why should we care? It's it's quite a good point because this figure is not necessarily the amount of water that is used in England even though it is like permitted out to be taken from the environment. So the question is like, why is this data useful and important? Um, And why should it be transparent? Because, you know, we got this through a data analysis. um, We had to do a freedom of information request to get it. It's not publicly available, but it is quite a startling sum. So the figure that we have for groundwater and surface water abstraction is about three times higher than what the government actually estimates was directly abstracted from these sources in the latest figures, which I have to say are actually quite old. Um, and this largely relies on self-reporting as well. So in terms of like how much water is being drawn out and used up, we don't have that figure. What we can tell you is how much is licensed. So it's important because it should be a matter of public knowledge. And the other point, I suppose, is if you're if you're taking vast amounts of water, what's the impact going to be of the hydrology and the ecology thereafter? Exactly. And this is also important in the context of the Environment Agency trying to reform this abstraction licensing scheme, um, because 
they've seen that this is just, you know, you've got these licenses that have been out for decades, you know, which have no time limit or expiry date on them. Wow. And they might be for water that doesn't actually physically exist in the environment anymore. I mean, according to the latest testing done under the Water Framework Directive requirements, that's in 2019, one in five surface waters are over-abstracted. And many catchments have no spare water that can be allocated for further abstraction. And that's sort of due to a need to protect the environment. Um, but also, you know, we're running out of drinking water. Um, the National Audit Office predicts that in 20 years, some parts of England may be struggling. And I've got this sort of the ghost of Sir James Bevan, uh, his jaws of death scenario playing out in my head, the former Environment Agency chief. You know, the point at which demand uh, outstrips supply, mm. which, like you say, is, is, is the predictions aren't that far off. Was there any surprises to you when you looked at the sort of the sector's consumption? Did anything jump out at you? There was actually. I, I found it interesting because we always talk about public water supply, but actually energy was by far the biggest um, use category for these water licenses. Um, it's important to contextualize that, of course, because with energy, that could include things like hydropower, where the water is abstracted from the environment, but it is returned. So it's not described as a consumptive user of water. Whereas, you know, when we're talking about public water consumption or even, you know, water supply, that water is consumed. <laughs> yeah, no, I understood, understood. But that's not to say that they're harmless. That's true. And actually, when I spoke to the Environment Agency to get a bit more context um, on these figures, they pointed out that hydropower projects can actually create long depleted stretches um, downstream of a project whilst they're using this water that, you know, would be returned. So they make sure that um, in those areas, there's not going to be an impact on fish. So there is right. like lots of considerations um, to be taken into account on that. Um, also, what I found interesting about the energy consumption side of things is a lot of the focus on reductions is on public water um, supply. But for energy, it feels like this is not really being looked at. And I wonder how joined up the thinking has been about future, um, you know, renewable energy that might be quite water intensive, for example, hydrogen. I mean, we've got targets to hit 10 gigawatts of capacity by 2030 for hydrogen production. Um, and this is a really water intensive, you know, project. So how are we going to achieve this and still reduce demand on water? Mm, interesting. Yeah. Are, are, are the energy wonks tied up with the water wonks at that sort of high level? It'd be good to know. Email us, ecochamber at haymarket.com, water and energy wonks. When you looked at the water supplies then, because that to me is a fairly easy thing to picture. Who's abstracting the most? So the top five biggest licenses, um, which is worth noting, they're sort of these are the separate licenses, not necessarily the sum total of the amount each water company can take. Um, but these were held by Thames Water, Anglian Water, and Northumbrian Water, um, and the quantities are actually pretty huge. Like Thames Water has a license to take one point six billion um, kilolitres out of the environment. Um, so just to put this in context, so in total, the whole water sector um, has 10.8 billion kilolitres of water licensed out for abstraction, according to our analysis, uh, whereas the energy sector had 
26.9 billion mm. kiloliters licensed out. And again, kiloliters is a thousand liters. So that's actually in the trillions. <laughs> it's wow. a lot of water. Um, but yes, as we mentioned, this water is, cons- it's a consumptive use. So it is a big pressure on the environment because that water's not coming back. Um And when you look at these permit licenses, what's also interesting is the majority are for groundwater sources. So nearly three quarters of all applications um, are from this source versus surface waters. But it's important to note the quantities, um, the quantity in litres of water coming from surface waters is greater. Okay, so more point sources for groundwater, but overall surface water, they're taking more kilolitres. Yes, because groundwater is actually you know, it's high quality um, and it's more resilient to things like drought, but it's um, it takes a long time to replenish in the environment. So we have to be really careful with those stores. And I suppose the, what's important about that is we are, you know, looking ahead, we are expecting a drier climate in the future. Yeah, I can imagine that um, the sort of pressure on these sources is only going to increase. It's not going to decrease. And in one of those sectors then where we do anticipate, you know, a, a need for more water is agriculture. It is, yes. Um, agriculture as a sector actually ranked fourth in terms of the total amount uh, that could be abstracted. Um, it was beaten by a big catch-all um, category, which is like industry, commercial and public services, which include things like petrochemicals, for example. Um, but yes, agriculture is still significant. And in some catchments, it is a major draw on um, water being taken on from the environment. Um, I always forget that aquaculture is part of agriculture. Um, but understandably, because this is to do with, you know, farming fish, it uses up a lot of water. Um, 1.5 billion kilolitres, according to our analysis, is licensed out. Um, and then general agriculture uses significantly less at 532.6 million kilolitres. And these are annual um, licences. Um, of course, general agriculture refers to things like watering crops. I mean, so that to me sounds like farming isn't so bad when it comes to sort of water abstraction, but either maybe there's a bit of nuance there we need to talk about. Yeah, there is. It's, it's really interesting, actually, because my initial impression when I was doing this overarching data analysis was that, oh, OK, that's much less than I expected. I thought it was going to come third, for example. But actually, when I looked at catchment by catchment approach, and we've done a map of this that you can find um, in the features where we cover this, um, in some areas, abstraction from for agriculture and for general agriculture is one of the biggest draws on the water supplies in the area. Um, so, for example, you know, if if farmers are taking a lot of water from one river right. and that's an over-abstracted source, then that's just as important as an energy company mm. um, taking billions of litres from a tidal area. You know, it's it's this is where like looking at just the figures themselves can be a bit misleading. Um, but I think the other thing that's quite interesting about this area is the fact that this is, again, a place where we're only going to need more water not less. Um, So for example, we're trying to grow more British produce, which is great, but we need more water to do that. Um, And particularly in summer months, um, we find that water bodies can be adversely affected, especially when you're trying to use that water for crops, because it will have higher concentrations of chemical pollutants, for example, just by the nature that there's less water there. 
Another interesting finding from this, though, was um, a big water user also is wine growing in the right. UK, which is only going to um, increase, I think, with the mild, milder climates. Um, I was looking at some industry reports and apparently sort of uh, the amount of land being used for like growing wine in England and Wales is up by something like 70%. There's an award-winning uh, bubbly rosé from my neck of the woods back oh, in really? South Hampshire that's been around. Yeah, it's happening. Wine growing is yeah. happening. Yeah, I think there's a, a Camel Valley Champagne um, in Cornwall. Nice. Yeah, everyone's talking about it at the moment. Um I mean, part of me is like, this is great. (laughs) Um, Especially because I do love to like visit a vineyard and try lots of different wines. But it does just show, you know, how um, water is a really precious resource. And if we want to keep, you know, seeing these industries flourish, we're going to have to think more about where we get that water from. Yeah, in in a changing climate where we know we're having some of the warmest years on record and the the means of production will be changing you know industries like you say the wine wine culture uh vineyards will be increasing if if the climate matches that and therefore what demands are going to be made of of our natural resources like water really mm. really interesting so hopefully the people at defro in government they are sort of predicting these trends and 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 trying to anticipate problems what what are some of the reforms they're looking at so I think one of the, the biggest um, reforms that's coming um, is that you have promised that they will have new powers to vary and revoke permanent abstraction licenses without compensation. And that's from 2028. Oh. Um, so that's important because some of those licenses that have been around for decades, which might not be for water that exists in the environment anymore, um, they can look at those and decide whether they can continue to to grant that or if they're going to have to change the conditions or even just completely scrap it. And I mean, in some cases, it might even be the person who owns that license doesn't even use it anymore, you know, or you've got the other side of the coin, which is that someone has a license for a huge amount of water, but they're taking most of it. Do you know what I mean? Because the amount has reduced since it was last assessed at what the safe quantities that could be taken from that environment were. So, I think that'd be a great change and um, campaigners are calling for the EA to actually set out if they've decided, you know, which ones they're going to be looking at and give us a bit more information about this because it does feel like this is in the early stages at the moment. There are also a few improvements that have been set out to bring some unregulated activities, like for example, trickle irrigation into abstraction licensing um, and just modernise the whole system itself and maybe look at you know, ways of monitoring how much water is being taken. The Environment Agency also want to bring this under the environmental permitting regulations, which should help with enforcement. Um, So the last thing to say on this is that there are targets for how much the government thinks we need to reduce abstraction by. And the earliest target is for an 800 million litre per day reduction by 2027. Um, By 2050, they're looking at a 1.4 billion litre per day reduction. And that's going to be important to protect the environment, especially some, you know, some of the rarest habitats in the world, which include chalk streams, for example. Um, So it is a known thing that we need to do something about this. We need to reduce the amount that is licensed out. I think what we're still hoping to find out is how this is going to be done and how quickly and efficiently. 
If you want to know more about England's abstraction figures and you're an end subscriber, you can go onto our website, look through Shosha's reports, go through the interactive maps, have a great time. It's all there. And that's it, folks. We have come to the end of our exploration of the eco chamber. My thanks to Jamie Carpenter, Alice Fillon and Shosha Aidy for coming on to this week's episode. We would love to hear from you listeners with your thoughts, your views, your opinions. You can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on socials using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.